Hi, and welcome back to To All My Darlings, Volume 3 of us still exploring Miss Macintosh, my darling. I know. We're going to be here for a while, I guess. Not too much longer. I'm going to finish up the uh, interviews today. Well, the philosophy part is going to take a long time Um, because it's the longest section, but that's okay. Uh, Dalkey isn't releasing the book until the summer anyways. Fingers crossed they better. Oh, it's criminal. They've, because now all the copies, it seems like there were copies that were more available before, used copies. I mean, I got my, I paid $50 for mine. So, but it seemed like at the time that was the most reasonable price and it seemed like it was available. And now it seems like it's when they said, oh, we're going to release, like, hang on to your copies, we're going to release a new, a new edition. And so now I'm seeing much, I'm seeing many more copies that are a lot higher priced in the hundreds of dollars. And then some, not really, like almost none of them at the price that I got my copy with. So hopefully better not back out of it. They better get it out by June. I'm just saying. <laughs> Cracks knuckles. I don't know. Um, so this is going to finish up the interviews. Uh, Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Debs, The Introduction. Um, she had some things in here that I thought at least gave us some insight into who she was and what she was thinking uh, while working on this. I don't I don't think I have anything really, uh, there isn't too much referring directly to Miss McIntosh, my darling, but I thought it had some really good information just about Marguerite Young, so I wanted to include it. It's pretty short too. I definitely just picked stuff out of that introduction to put in here. Marguerite Young dedicated the last two and a half decades of her life to writing this biography of Eugene Debs, a resident of Greenwich Village in New York City for over 40 years. She became the living representative of its heyday as a literary center. People pointed her out and greeted her on the street. She was a colorful, colorful presence, strolling nonchalantly down Bleecker Street in her long crimson dresses with a gold embroidered vest, her black Polish nursemaid boots worn with pink stockings, toes peeking through, and a floor-length red woolen cape thrown over her shoulder. Young had naturally red hair, and when her hairdresser passed away in the beauty parlor on Bleecker Street closed, Margaret Young bought a wig the same color as her real hair and had it cut the same way. Young's parent, Young's parents separated when she was three, and she and her sister made their home with her grandmother, who encouraged her talent. And since, I don't know, that I'm assuming since three years old she stayed with her grandmother, I don't know that she ever went back with her parents, except when her, it's mentioned that her mother and stepfather invited her to New Harmony, Indiana, to check out that, the history of that place. But I don't know at what, I don't know at what age that happened, but I'm assuming she was in her 20s. Um, every afternoon, at the same time, she had breakfast at Reichert's Coffee Shop on Sheridan Square in the village. She read all three New York papers every morning before work over her innumerable cups of coffee. Marguerite Young was drawn to the larger social issues of the late 60s, the civil rights marches in the South, the mounting protests against the war in Vietnam, and the plight of conscientious objectors. Every issue made her think of Debs. 
when she was asked to join a panel of women writers against the war in Vietnam. She realized that she was hearing a modern-day recapitulation of all the issues that had motivated Eugene Debs. All of these cultural phenomena made Margaret Young understand that the youth of America had unconsciously returned in a fragmented way to a deeper ideological bedrock than Marxism, one predating Debs. They had gone back to the utopian ideals of the early settlers and of those made dreamers, of those mad dreamers who were so profoundly a part of the American spirit. Young saw in all the young people around her a great need for information about Debs and his era to guide them through the present political conflict and chaos, for there had been a struggle and a social upheaval greater than this in the American past. They needed to know about Debs. Adapting the techniques she used in Miss McIntosh, My Darling, Marguerite starts subjectively deploying a series of multiple consciousnesses, but ultimately arriving at an objective record of events. In contrast to a strictly linear structure, her narrative resembles spokes radiating from a center. Her profound grasp of psychology, I would say, uh, uh, philosophy, not psychology. I mean, I know, yes, psychology, that's in there, but I think the philosophy trumps that. Especially since she was pursuing her doctorate in philosophy. is revealed by the characters' actions, which then reverberate through the lives around them. So vivid were the ironies and absurdities of history that Margaret Young would burst into hearty laughter and tell them as if they were current jokes. After several bouts of hospitalization during which her condition worsened, her niece, Daphne Nolan, with her children, moved as much as they could of Margaret Young's New York apartment to the Nolan house in Indianapolis, where they recreated her rooms down to every detail. There they nursed her until well nigh the end. Um, and that's all I had of that one. Let me change. No. Come on. Okay, I need to fix this real quick. So I found this um, interview that Miriam Fuchs did with Marguerite Young uh, just two years before her death. So I included it here. The, the following dialogue took place when Marguerite Young was hospitalized in June 1993. The exchange moves rapidly between topics of discussion and is sometimes disjointed. Young was ill at the time, but readers will recognize the marvelous and illogical statements as characteristic of Young's own form of logic, and, in addition, that her statements often allude to antidotes and events in Miss McIntosh, My Darling. I have included names as I heard them, which means that the spelling may not always be accurate and the antidotes as Young elliptically told them. Readers will also notice that I often change the line of questioning while trying to get specific information from Young with varying degrees of success. Rather than researching every detail that Young offered in our last talk, I prefer to leave her responses as a tribute to her astounding talent, imagination, and insistence on truthfulness. After preliminary greetings, Young began to describe the preparation of her Debs manuscript at Knopf. Published as one volume and edited by Charles Ross, it was entitled Harp Song for a Radical, A Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs. 
Marguerite Young, she, the editor, was tremendous understanding. She, we have to cut it in such a way that the three volumes will be the Bible of modern prose, the Bible on your table. This is because I will have done the most massive epic achievement ever done by a woman in the Western, and then it trails off. Miriam Fuchs, women have not generally written epics. Marguerite Young, no, they haven't. See, I have to cut it to fit it all in one volume, the Bible, on every coffee table in America, the Bible of the American psych. She, the editor, said, what you're really writing about is not Debs, it is America. Well, I knew that. <laughs> uh, Fuchs, does that mean you have the second volume done? Young, well, for the second volume, we have to put, it, we have to put in just the first two or three chapters. It's the best. Fuchs, what is the title of your second volume? Young, well, the first is Prelude to the Gold... Prelude in the Golden Key, The Life and Times of Eugene Debs. The second is, oh, let's see, I forget. The last is Harp Song for a Radical from the Pullman Strike. I forget now. It was Mrs. Lincoln, and it, was, and it has all the many wonderful things about Lincoln and, that you never knew. The discussion moves to Marguerite's friend, the poet Amy Clampett, from whom I had received a letter about her contribution to Marguerite Young, our darling. Young, I love Amy. You know what happened? Well, I met her the first day I ever came to New York. She was in love with a man, a stone-deaf man, who wouldn't marry her because I don't know whether she... He said her high heels made too much noise and her earrings, which is true if you're listening to the vibrations. But she adored him. She cooked spaghetti and meatballs for me the first day I arrived in New York. I've known her since the first day I ever arrived. Fuchs, Dalkey Archive Press recently sent me the manuscript inviting the Muses, a collection of some of your early writings. You recall, yes, that your stories, essays, and book reviews are going to be published soon? Young, is there one in it called My Grandmother's Foot? Oh, I love that. And that was about Lillian Blumberg. The story is about Lillian and her grandmother's foot, which was accidentally buried in the wrong grave. So when they dug up the parts to attach on Resurrection Day, it was her grandmother's hand. Fuchs, so that story is true. Young, yes, it's true. And I told the story in her voice. You would know it. It was Lillian if you ever heard Lillian talk. And Lillian made a pact that she would allow me to write whatever I pleased. There are many more things I didn't get around to telling about Lillian. But Lillian gave birth to an angel's foot, an angel's wing, and I don't know what else while she was in a hospital with hallucinations. I understand that now. This boy, a young writer, was in love with her and very, very devoted to her. And his mother came and said, Well, son, since your baby is only imaginary, a stone baby, you don't have to marry her. You just have to come back with me. He said, Mother, if she loves me enough to have an imaginary stone baby with me, I'm marrying her and I'm going to make it real. And he did. And Lillian went out to Berkeley and she educated that guy and he became a brilliant so sociologist. And then she had a daughter by him, a red-headed daughter, and she educated that daughter to be one of the foremost news commentators. I forget the daughter's name. And she died sitting on a park bench in Berkeley with her hand holding on to her little dog. The story is only about 20 pages and it really is hilarious. I've read it. It is really good. Fuchs, I've begun reading the articles in Inviting the Muses that you originally wrote for magazines such as Mademoiselle and Vogue. There's an article about Marianne Moore in which you describe visiting her in Brooklyn. You wrote, she, was a she has a box of wild bird feathers and bluebird's blue feet. She offered me a bluebird's foot. She offered me some eagle down, which she says is getting scarcer. Did you visit her and did Moore give you a bluebird's foot? Young, yes, although I think she said that it wasn't a bluebird. It was something else much more interesting. I forget now, but whatever I said was true. Fuchs, there's an editor's note somewhere saying that in addition to taking a PhD, you've written two books of poems, taught school, worked in the stock market, and in an electric chair factory. I didn't bring the note with me, and now can't remember if it really did say an electric chair factory, or whether I'm veering off into my own imagined memories. Can you help me out here? Young, it was a chair factory, but I never did take a PhD. I did all the work and walked out on it. I wish I hadn't, but I did. I did all those things.
You worked in an electric chair factory? Young. Oh, yes, when I was first out of high school, and that was the most interesting, strange, horrifying experience, and Carson McCullers thought it would be smart to tell everybody that I used to work in an electric chair factory. Fuchs, did you also work in the stock market? Young, yes, David L. Payne. He was writing his memoirs, and he, I wrote his biography. He said to put in a lot of stuff about early Indiana and how beautiful it was. He was very funny. Oh, God, I worked for him for four years without a vacation. Fuchs, in those magazine articles, surely you were laughing to yourself at how the editors and readers would receive the fantastic anecdotes in them. Young, it was all true. If I said I saw it, I don't remember now. I ought to read those pieces sometime. The bus driver, too. I b briefly read aloud a few passages from Miss McIntosh, my darling. Young, well, it was said to be true. It was a legend, you know. What I liked was the girl who was going to take the football team to heaven. Cedar Rapids. Oh, see the rabbits. The little boy thought he was going to see the rabbits. I heard that. Don't you know where the girl was dancing? You know the man who measures the wind tonnage of music over the Brooklyn Bridge? It's true. And you know Harpo got inside a bicycle wheel with his harp. It's true. Everything I've written is true. I don't make up anything. Pukes, why did you open Miss Macintosh, my darling, with the young couple Madge and Homer? Young, I was looking for the model Middle West, remember? But I never found it because there isn't any. Fuchs, yes, I do remember, and I suspect that most readers have been struck by the degree of violence. There's Gertrude who murders one husband, then marries his brother, then kills him too. Young, yes, well, it's true, by the way. Fuchs, why did you write so many book reviews? Young, I was a book reviewer for the New York Times and the New York Herald Tribune. I got a lot of money, but the reviews meant a great deal to me. Also, the work gave me a chance to write, like the death of Virgil, beautiful reviews for people who needed them, like Kurt Wolf. I very much enjoyed writing them. And Marianne Hosser was a person I wrote about. She's a wonderful writer. Fuchs, what about the story Old James? It is raining cats and dogs today. Um, that's what you're hearing in the background. Young, yes, this is a personal favorite. That was in the anthology of the best. I could have edited that piece if the editors had known I wanted to. I like to write about books, and I made money that way, and it was years before I got any money from anybody else. No, it wasn't a drain on my energies. What drained my energy was teaching in three or four universities, <laughs> going way out to the Fordham campus and then Seton Hall in Great Neck. It was awful. Fuchs, is Angel in the Forest a defense of utopia or a defense of socialism? Young, neither one. It's just the way I saw things, by putting in everything I could. Fuchs, is the story of the seven suitcases in Rome true? This is told in the jacket copy of the first edition of Miss Macintosh, My Darling. It says that seven suitcases of the manuscript were lost in a train station in Rome, but located by seven men from Cook's, who had to use seven wheelbarrows to retrieve them. Young, true. But it was Gare Lazare in Paris. I think in the palace. Peter Prescott said in his review, good God that they had remained lost. <laughs> Fuchs, how does your prose in the Deb's book differ from Miss Macintosh, my darling? Young, it's just as beautiful in some ways. Well, it's equal. It is not, none of the books, by the way, not one of them is, they remain at a high level, and that's what she, the editor at Knopf, says makes it so beautiful. Utopia is not the realization. It's in the words. Only in words do they exist, because when you get there, it isn't what you thought it would be. That's what Walt Whitman said, too. Fuchs, so in the Debs manuscript, is your emphasis really on utopia? Are you using Debs and socialism as particular manifestations of utopianism? Young, it's the tragicomic history of American socialism, prelude in the Golden Key. I forget the second volume, but it's lovely. And the third, Harp Song for a Radical. Fuchs, you once said to me that Miss McIntosh was the one character you most nearly invented. You knew the others, but she was your invented character. Why was she in particular the invented character? Young, that's right. I don't know. I had to invent somebody who was sensible, or who seemed sensible. 
She hailed from What Cheer, Iowa, and there were headlines, What Cheer Makes National Press. It seems that there was a What Cheer, Iowa, and that there was a Macintosh in it, but I didn't know that then. Fuchs, you also once said to me how you would advise people to read Miss Macintosh, My Darling, and you said that they shouldn't take it too so seriously. They should read it for the humor. <laughs> Young, they can always read it again if they like it. At different periods in your life, you see a different book. That's awesome. Fuchs, do you consider yourself to be a writer of humor? Young, absolutely. I don't think there is such a thing as tragedy. It's tragicomic. Everything is like the two Mr. Spitzers. You know, is he alive or is he dead? However, the Black Poachman, he's one of my favorite characters. Or the Twin House, or the old suffragette, chock full of wedding dresses. Fuchs, does your Deb's manuscript include independent sections as Miss Macintosh, my darling, does? Young, absolutely. Did I tell you that I've returned to writing poems? It's very funny. I found out that I can write beautiful poems very different from what I wrote a long time ago. She begins to recite them. This is I, Louisa May Alcott, who should be called. This is I, Louisa May Alcott, who should be called. Who should be called Louisa May not Alcott, in view of the prohibitions placed upon the children of three to confess her sins and make her feel that it was progress and repent. The poetry is very wonderful, and all these ladies, all these people, rather, are people who recur in the Debs manuscript and are his immediate background. Fuchs, are all of your recent poetic voices those of women? Young, there are two men. I can't remember who they are now, but I wrote one. It really is beautiful. One of them is four and a half pages. Another is I, Susan B. Anthony. I, Susan B. E. B. E. E. In her bottom, Anthony. <laughs> and I, Harriet Beecher Stowe, that's the one I love the most. And on and on, I, Margaret Fuller, I, Josie Baker. Fuchs, have you written I, Margaret Young? Young, no. Fuchs, what made you return to poetry after all these years? Young, because I know how to do it. I found that I can write poetry. It's as easy for me, and good poetry, this is a beautiful poem, is rolling off a log. And all these men and women are in the background of the Indiana and America from which Debs came. They are the background of the times. They are really beautiful. Fuchs, are any of these speakers or characters in your work extensions of yourself? Young, I don't write about myself. I never did. You've been doing that for Marguerite. The conversation continues briefly about Young's age, then comes to an end. Marguerite Young died two years later in 1995. Marion Fuchs, Associate Professor of English at the University of Hawaii and Associate Editor of Biography, publishes the fields of life writing and modern literature. She edited Marguerite Young, Our Darling, Tributes and Essays, and co-edited with Ellen G. Friedman, Breaking the Sequence, Women's Experimental Literature. Her book, The Text is Myself, Women's Life Writing and Cat Ca Catastrophe, is forthcoming from the University of Wisconsin Press, 2003. And then I have a link, because it's on where I found this uh, interview was on the free library. Uh, all right, and then we are in, which I don't think I have time. I have a couple minutes. Okay, so part five is the symbolism in Ms. McIntosh, my darling. Marguerite Young studied epic literature at the University of Chicago. Symbolism plays a heavy role in Ms. McIntosh, my darling. Listed are a few examples of recurrent words from the book that are either given explicit symbolism by Marguerite Young or are other common symbolism for words which were pulled from resources that seem to fit the direction of the novel. In the essay on teaching from Inviting the Muses, Young says great literature is the repository of the wisdom of the human race and reaches far, far back into the mists of time. To her, the poetry of prose is self-discovery through the rendering of thoughts into a stream of consciousness which can build a world and exist alone when the writer is no more. 
Words were found with the search function in a PDF copy of the book. When possible, the frequency of a specific word was counted. Please note that the Kindle ebook on a Kindle will show will only show the first 500 entries of a specific word. I tried using the Kindle to begin with, and then uh, and then quickly found out that um, when you search for something on the Kindle, you only get the first 500 entries, uh, 500 instances of the word. Even if I did it on a computer, like I have the Kindle app on my computer, so I set about converting the EPUB to a PDF and then using the PDF, which is really cool because the PDF will give you a frequency of the word. So you can, so I could even look at how frequently the word was used in what sections of the book, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I do some things here. But, but I'm not going to read them, I don't, I don't think. So I can read like some of the things that are like angel, bell, bell rope, bird, black, blackbird, bl blossoms, boxer, branch, bridge, butterfly, canary, uh, Mr. Chandelier. Um, I put the instances when they were used, unless the word, of course, okay, so the one limitation of it is that if a word makes up the part of another word, all of that is counted. So everything's given in approximates. Um, I did go through um, on some of these. Okay, so the symbolism has this section, um, which includes the names. Um, and then I get to something longer, like, let's see, all of these are pretty short. They're not too long. And they go all the way, they're in alphabetical order. So, but there are some big concepts in the book. And at first I had them in the sim symbolism section, but then... So if you go through the symbolism section, or it's kind of an index, not, not really, because I didn't put any page numbers on, but um, the Kindle copy should be released. So you went out, okay, baby, I'll finish up and I'll take you inside. Okay. As <laughs> he got wet. I'm sorry. Um, so there are concepts like time, space, reality, dream, memory, consciousness, unconsciousness. So those big themes uh, that are in the book, I felt fit more in the philosophy section than in the symbolism section. So what I did was literally type in time, typed in time. And then I went through all the entries for time. Sometimes there's like a thousand. Um, I went through all the entries and I pulled out the quotes that seemed to give an idea of what Young was striving for, what she was trying to communicate through it. And I haven't gone back and read through it. I mean, they, they seem really good when I pulled them out, but I don't know if, um, I don't know how they fit together. I haven't been back through it. So, so that'll come when we go through the philosophy section, then I'll spend some time really reading and reading that stuff. Okay. So next time we will start with part six, women's experiences in Ms. McIntosh, my darling. Excellent. Thank you very much. That wraps up part four and five. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Bye.